This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Everybody, this is the other side of midnight. There are a couple of interesting things happening in this country with respect to crime. The first is anecdotal, and the second is based on statistics. And there was an interesting column in the Wall Street Journal that dealt that dealt with this kind of dichotomy between the way people feel versus what the numbers say. Let's talk about what my experience is in terms of how people feel. When I talk to guests, when I talk to callers to this radio program, when I talk to experts, uh, lawyers, prosecutors, defense attorneys, uh, police officers, retired cops, when I talk to my friends in real life, when I talk to family members in real life, There's one thing they all have in common. The one thing they all have in common across the board, and it doesn't matter, young, old, black, white, they believe, and it doesn't even matter if they're living in New York or Baltimore or St. Louis or Texas, quite frankly. What I have heard across the board is they believe crime is worse today, specifically violent crime is worse today than it was a few years ago. And yet, in October, the FBI's annual report showed violent crime in 2022, last year, fell to its relatively low pre-pandemic level. And if my anecdotal experiences of uh, talking to my friends and callers and guests is not enough for you, People have been polled and have said essentially the same thing. In November, Gallup reported that a record, a record high of 63% of U.S. adults said the crime situation in the U.S. is extremely or very serious. So, what's it all about, Alfie? Why do people feel victimized? Why do people feel afraid of violent crime when the statistics that the FBI is reporting, they say, well, we're just as safe now as we were in 2019. Something doesn't add up. And in um, it's one of my favorite columns of the weekend that I really look forward to reading. Josh Zumbrin writes the numbers column in the Wall Street Journal. And this is what his whole column was about. His headline, violent crime is down. Here's why more people feel victimized. And he writes, there's important gaps that exist between how the FBI measures serious offenses and what people experience. So if you look at what the FBI statistics say, and if you look at what Gallup says and what you hear from people on the street, it would look like one of two things. It seemed to suggest that either the crime data is wrong And crimes simply aren't being reported, at least not reported accurately, or people are unrealistically negative. And I've heard both things. The people that are very worried about crime, they always say, well, they're just not making arrests. Cops aren't making arrests. People are not, uh, they're not, crimes are not being reported. The people who want to talk about how safe things are 
they said, well, you know, shows like yours and newspapers like the New York Post, uh, they work everybody into a tizzy thinking about how crazy it is uh, and how violent the streets are when the streets are relatively safe. Well, Josh Zumbrin raises another possibility. What he writes is that more people are experiencing crime, but it isn't captured in FBI measures. So you have, you know, when you look at how the crime statistics come together, it shows that violent crime can fall and people can simultaneously experience more crime. Does that make sense? What does that mean? Well, the FBI's crime statistics system originated in 1930. Its most reported figure, the rate of violent crime, combines the most serious offenses, homicide, rape, aggravated assault, and robbery. This rate is back to its pre-pandemic level, which itself came near the end of a multi-decade decline from 1991 until 2014. Violent crime in the U.S., like much of the world, quite frankly, fell sharply. Uh, Well, I'll spare you the numbers on how sharply, but it fell sharply. So... This is discussed a great deal in criminology courses, but it's one thing that I don't think that the general public has a a full understanding of. But uh, one expert called this one of the most one of the least, excuse me, one of the least remarked upon, but most important social phenomena in our lifetimes, meaning that incredible fall in crime from 1991 until 2014. In 2022, the rate stood at three hundred and eighty one down from a recent peak of 399, this is per 100,000 people. But these figures come with some qualifiers. The FBI has been changing to a more granular data reporting system. The switch was supposed to be completed in 2021, but that year many police departments were still learning the new system. So the FBI used data from police departments covering only 52% of the country. Well, you might say, well, what good is that? Well, what the FBI did is they extrapolated the rest, making it very difficult to know whether violent crime actually rose or fell compared with 2020. For 2022, the FBI has data from departments covering 94% of the country. Another qualifier here is that the violent crime rate is largely driven by aggravated assaults and robberies, which are far more numerous than homicides. A lot of you may not know anyone that's been murdered. I'm betting you know someone that's been assaulted or been robbed. Homicides are naturally a major concern, and the homicide rate soared in 2020 amidst the pandemic. And in 2022, it's still 43% higher than it was 2014. in 2014. Much of the decline since the 90s has been reversed during the previous three years. So the big question then is, and if you want to weigh in on this, meaning the dichotomy between why people clearly across the country do not feel safe, and yet the FBI crime statistics show they are. They're as safe as they were in 2019. I'd love to hear from you. 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. The fundamental question, though, is are these crimes being reported? The violent crimes, are they being reported to the police? 
Well, I mean, I think it's clear if you look at these FBI statistics that they almost certainly undercount actual crimes experienced by people. And trends in the two, meaning crimes reported and violent crimes experienced, you know, can be pretty significant. Separate from the FBI, which gets its data from the police, the Justice Department asks people whether they've been victims of crime and whether they reported it to police. And I found this just fascinating. Again, this is all in this Josh Zumbrin column in the Wall Street Journal. The September National Crime Victimization Survey showed, are you ready for this? Only about 40% of violent crimes were reported to the police in 2022. Think about that. Only 40% of violent crimes were reported to the police in 2022. The number of people who said they were a victim of violent crime rose 42% from 2021 but only 29% more reported crimes to the police. So the number of people who said they were a victim of violent crime rose 42%. The number of people who said they reported crimes to the police, it rose only 29%. Now, this data has some caveats, too. But the the other thing here that I want you to keep in mind, and this is why I found this Josh Zumbrin column so interesting. I'm going to link to it right now on my uh, Facebook page, facebook.com slash Fan, if you want to read it. Um, if you don't have a subscription to the Wall Street Journal, you can just use uh, archive.ph. Just copy and paste the URL into there. But people worry about more than violent crime. So the statistics may show violent crime is down. But in 2023, 28% of people told Gallup as part of its annual survey on crime that their household had been hit by a crime. That's up. From three years ago. Not all of these are violent. Gallup asked about seven crimes, including nonviolent ones, but nonetheless, they matter if, you, if your house is burglarized. That matters to you. That makes you feel like a victim. So, uh, unsurprisingly, 75% of households who report being victimized by a crime say they believe crime is rising in their area versus 47% of those who weren't victimized. So several high-profile types of crime also seem to be on the rise. Carjacking, that climbed in 2022. That's not according to how people are feeling. That's according to the FBI. Retail theft, which isn't included in violent crime statistics, is also growing, uh, going up. And we've talked about that. That's driven especially by cities like New York and Los Angeles. In a lot of other cities... Some some of those thefts, retail theft, is falling. But an analysis from John Jay College of Criminal Justice finds retail thefts at major commercial retailers like drugstores and department stores in New York City, for instance, soared from 31,000 in 2014 to 54,000 last year. So some people say only corporations are victimized by that sort of crime. But that's not true. Some customers will notice that they have to ask an employee to unlock the detergent shelf. These people might correctly conclude that crime is going up even if they aren't personally a victim to it. So uh, I found the column to be really insightful, as I do all of Josh uh, Zunbrun's columns. And, you know, maybe I'll, I'll send him an email, invite him on the show one of these days, because I get so much great content from the columns that he's right, that he writes And he writes with a focus all about numbers 
And he always just finds an interesting angle on the numbers. And I've been wondering about this. In fact, I've talked about it on the air when we've gone through uh, similar sets of statistics before. Why do the statistics show crime is down, but people feel that they're more dangerous? People feel that crime is up. So it's certainly good news that violent crime, with the notable exception of homicide, by the way, which is pretty important, is down. But given the rise in other types of crime, retail thefts, carjackings, other things, it's not at all surprising that households are concerned. 800-848-9222, Three open lines if you want to comment. We have got a great show for you today. I uh, really enjoyed the discussion that we had yesterday on speeding and deaths caused by speeding. I thought a lot of the callers raised a lot of interesting points. I also got a lot of great emails from people that were listening to that conversation, and they raised a bunch of points that I hadn't thought to bring up. Well, we're going to have one of the gentlemen that I cited yesterday um, that um, that I think is a really bright guy, uh, Professor Emer- Emeritus at uh, George Washington University Law School, John Banzaff, He's going to join us in the next hour. Coming up in about 15 minutes, I'm going to talk with Katherine Johnson Martinko. This is a really interesting woman. I've been following her writing and her journalism for many years, and she's got a new book out called Childhood Unplugged, Practical Advice to Get Kids Off Screen and Find Balance. This is something that I wonder about, you know. There are so many times when my son really wants to watch Mickey Mouse Clubhouse or he wants to watch Sesame Street or Coco Melon those are, or Daniel Tiger. Those are his four big shows right now. And I think to myself, all right, I mean, if he can watch this for 15 minutes, it gives me 15 minutes to get some work done, to answer a couple emails, to try and book a guest on the show today. Am I harming him? by letting him watch television for 15 or 20 minutes. And this is a whole separate conversation, I think, anyway, when it comes to mobile devices. Uh, There are uh, Our neighbors across the street have a four-year-old. He is on his tablet constantly. And, you know, I I talk with his mother about it. The mother says, well, yeah, he uses a lot of – he looks at a lot of educational programming. So – a lot of parents, the conventional wisdom has always been this is harmful. How do you get kids off, especially during the winter when they can't go outside? We're going to talk about it with Catherine Johnson Martinko. I have a lot of other issues to raise with her as well. But first, let me hear from you. Three open lines if you want to comment. 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. Gene is in East Islip. Hello, Gene. Hello, Frank. How are you? I'm doing dandy. Thank you, Gene. All right. I love your show. And I just want to make a quick comment on the... Um why people don't trust the FBI statistics. Mm-hmm. I think there's an overall distrust of any uh, government-reported statistics because a lot of them are skewed, um, maybe for political reasons or for uh, whoever thinks that it's more accurate to report a statistic a certain way. Um, I dealt with a little bit of statistics in another area, and many times statistics are skewed unless you dive real deep into the explanation of how they came to those numbers. It's not just a raw number. They do it per capita. They do it um, in certain areas. Uh, And I also think that it's broadcast more 
uh, on the internet and people see it and they feel like because they see it, it's it's uh, it's more happening more often. Well, I, I, I tend to think you're right, Gene. Uh, what, what about this point that Josh Zumbrin makes that part of the reason that people feel victimized is that the crimes that they're seeing, uh, namely retail theft or uh, house burglaries or carjackings, that's not that's not counted in the FBI crime statistics. Do you think he's got a point there? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because that could be, you know, that would listen, if I was in a uh, if I was, uh, uh, you know, nearby to one of those smash and grab when they all, when the whole group of people comes in and burglarize a uh, retail uh, store, that would feel very violent to me. Even if that's not counted, right. if that's counted as a burglary, not as a, um, uh, right. As a violent so, crime. Right. I, I, think, uh, I think you're right on the money, Gene. Hey, Gene, thanks for calling. I hope you call again. Thank you, Frank. 800-848-9222, 800-848-9222. Al is in Yonkers. Hi, Frank. Good morning. You know, Frank, I think uh, crime has gone up, and the general public believes it's gone up because of what they uh, experienced with the uh, Black Lives Matter uh, protests throughout the country. And I think the general public realizes uh, that the police in the different departments throughout the country uh, they're doing less. Uh, in my city, in Yonkers, I see quality of life uh, issues that a decade, you know, a decade ago or even eight years ago or up to uh, the protests that we saw a few years ago, uh, they would enforce stop signs. And if you were double parked on Main Street, they'd give you tickets. But they are actually doing less. A lot of them have it uh, in their mindset that let me just do the 20 years and get out, and they're doing less than they should be. Let me ask you this, Al, uh, and uh, that makes sense. I I get that. I had a neighbor uh, who, retired cop, his car was uh, was robbed. I mean, they didn't take anything valuable, but you still, whenever somebody robs you, you do feel victimized. And I said to him, I said, Lenny, are you going to, you know, are you going to call the cops? And he said, no, you know, I was a cop myself for 20 years, 25 years, whatever he said. They're really not going to do anything. They're not going to be able to do anything. So I'm not even going to report it. Do you think that the kind of belief on the part of members of the public that it doesn't matter if they report these crimes is leading to fewer people reporting crimes? Al, sorry, I lost you there. Al, um, I'm sorry. Yes. I don't know if you heard my question. Uh, yes, I, I agree. I, I think that's true. All right, Al, I appreciate that very much. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two. Uh, if you want to comment on Twitter, it'll always be good old Twitter to me, just as uh, Myanmar will always be Burma to Jay Peterman. You can find me on uh, Twitter at Frank, M-O-R-A-N-O. That's Frank, M-O-R-A-N-O. Uh, George is in New York State. Hello, George. Hi, Frank. Um, we may have come across each other. I was a court clerk for many years in criminal division of the courts. In uh, and state court or, or in federal court? Uh, no, I, I know the guys from federal court. Just as an aside, we used to all hang out on Lafayette Street in a place called Peggy Doyle's, and a person you interviewed, Malachi McCord, used to attend bar there. Oh, sure, guy. sure. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I was anyway, never in Peggy Doyle's, but... Uh, it's before your time, yeah, I think. Yeah, I, sure, I know a lot of those guys, sure. Okay. Anyway, you know, I know the guys from federal court. It's, it, it's, what I'm going to say is... 
with all the 24-hour news cycle and all of the cameras, when the average person, I don't like to use the word perception, but I don't know any other word to use. That's used a lot today. When the average person or citizen sees a bunch of people run into a store and ransack it, it's shocking to a lot of people. When a camera catches, you didn't have that years ago. And I used to see it in the AR1 in the Raymond part. You know, you see a young kid that he did this crazy crime you don't believe. He had a face of an angel. But anyway... When you see somebody thrown to the ground and it's caught on camera and he's being stomped, it's shocking to a lot of people. That's why there's a feeling of being unsafe. Talking about statistics, they're not, they're not accurate. Believe me, we used to give statistics from the court. I don't want to go into the example of what we used to do to, to um, it be boring to your audience. But that's my opinion of it. Well, let me ask you just this, George. Let me just ask you, George, let me just ask you this about the uh, failure of statistics, because I I believe the old truism by Harry Truman that there's lies, damn lies and statistics. I I think it was Truman that said that. Um, Where do you think the statistics are faulty? Do you think it's faulty because uh, police are not accurately reporting their numbers to the FBI? Do you think people are not reporting the crimes accurately? Uh, They're they're not calling in the crimes? Where is the failure in terms of the statistics to measure this? I can only give you an example. If a complaint came into the court of uh, shoplifting, okay, it's one count of shoplifting. Today, when 20, 30 people run into a store and they ransack it, it's reported as shoplifting. It doesn't say 20. It, it, I don't know if I'm making my point. It doesn't show 30 people you know, going into a store. It says one count of shoplifting. But in effect, it's 30 people committing shoplifting and ransacking. That's one example. I, could, I don't want to. It's too technical to go into it. They, they, we, we, they try, everybody tries to be honest. I can give you an example from the court if this won't bore you, if you want to hear it. Yeah, can we uh, give me a quick example, sure. Okay, quickly. The judges, in, and I worked in the criminal court. I, used to work, I worked in the state Supreme Court almost four decades. I worked in a part. You know, I was in the back with the judges. We used to try to monitor. The Office of Court Administration would try to monitor how many trials were held. So what we would do, and it, wasn't dishon- it was a little dishonest, not on my part. It's just to protect the judge. When somebody wanted to plead guilty, the judge would say, are you ready for trial, ladies and gentlemen, uh, plaintiff, you ready for trial, DA, you ready for trial? They'd say yes. But it was all new that guy was going to take a plea. And then when the guy or lady took the plea, or man or woman, my grammar's terrible tonight, uh, I would report it as trial held. Do you get what I'm saying? I get it. It wasn't really, I get it. A, tr- it, it wasn't really a trial. So the statistics are fudged. They're just, they're fudged. I got you, George. I got you, George. Thank you. All right. Very much looking forward to uh, chatting with Catherine Johnson Martinko about screen time and children. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Side of Midnight with Frank Morano.
singing about the kids in America. Well, if there's one commonality that the kids in America seems to enjoy or share, it's uh, that they all really seem to like screens. Television scene screens, computer screens, but especially the smartphone. Um, when it's you know when it's nice out, I have a two year old, and when it's nice out, I try to bring him outside as much as possible. And we're very blessed to have a block that has a lot of children on it. Most of the children, most of the boys on our block are a, a bit older than him. Uh, there's a four year old across the street, a six year old up the street. There's a, a nine year old. There's a, even a ten year old. There's a twelve year old. All within within spitting distance of our house, and it's great. But I would be perpetually perplexed during the summer how sometimes these boys would be outside and they would be outside with their tablet playing some sort of a game either with each other or just separately sitting next to one another sitting outside sometimes on a very nice day and they're sitting outside with their tablet and my son being maybe you know a year and a half almost two years old at the time would walk over to their tablets and he'd be curious about the colors and the screens. And I would call him over. I said, no, 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 leave, leave that, uh, leave that screen alone, leave that tablet alone. And then one of these boys, mother would say, oh no, that's okay. He doesn't mind sharing. I said, no, no, I really don't want my son to become a screen addict. I've often wondered uh, when my son wants to watch Daniel Tiger or Sesame Street and just letting him watch 15 minutes of television would give me an incredible break in terms of actually being able to prepare for this show or get something, a chore that I need done for the house. Am I hindering him by letting him watch 15 minutes of television at two years old. Somebody uh, that has spent a great deal of time thinking about these issues and writing about them is uh, Catherine Johnson-Martinko. She's a writer with a decade of experience in digital news publishing. She's been an editor of a lot of publications that you have heard of over the years. And she's also the author of a book that everybody is talking about. It's called Childhood Unplugged, Practical Advice to Get Kids Off Screen and Find Balance. Catherine, thanks for joining me on the radio. Hi, Frank. Thanks so much for having me. So let's begin with, before we can discuss how to get children off of screens, uh, let's talk about what's wrong with screens. What's the big deal if uh, a child is on their mobile phone or on their uh, tablet a great deal? Yes. Well, that scene that you just described of a summer day with kids sitting on their devices, looking at them instead of at the world around them is all too common pretty much everywhere across the country these days. And my big issue with screens is that it is displacing opportunities for other really important growth opportunities for these kids. So the latest studies are showing that teens especially are spending upwards of nine hours a day on screens, which to me indicates that they're just missing out on a whole lot of other really important life experiences. So we know that screens are getting in the way of kids being physically active. It's getting in the way of them getting enough sleep at night and staying focused on their schoolwork and even paying attention in class if they're taking it into their schoolrooms, as they often are. It's inhibiting their ability to, you know, develop facial recognition cues. There's even studies showing that babies are failing to develop um, smile reflexes because they're not getting enough face-to-face contact with their own parents. So really, these screens, as entertaining and alluring as they may be, are um, interrupting a lot of really important opportunities for growth and learning that kids need these days. 
Well, that's all re- really interesting. I mean, are there ever instances where you think it's okay for a television screen? I, I know of a lot of couples, for instance, with young children that uh, on the f- rare occasions where they get to go out to dinner and they bring their child with them in order to avoid having the child uh, throw things and be very loud and boisterous, they'll let them watch or, or play a game on a, a tablet. Is that okay in your book? In a restaurant, no. I would say I, it always breaks my heart when I see these families out for dinner and the two parents you know, are often absorbed on their own phones and then the poor kid is staring at a tablet as well and nobody is talking and nobody's interacting. And, you know, that kid um, could be engaging with its parents and, you know, looking around the restaurant and really absorbing the whole experience in a really formative kind of way, but instead everyone's locked in their own little isolated bubble staring at their device. So... I don't know. I think that screens should really be reserved for very, very rare special occasions when a parent is in desperate need of some backup, you know, on a you know rainy, snowy day, if the kid is sick, if you absolutely need a break. But um, generally, I think that these screens are eroding um, childhood for a lot of children, you know, and um, we know that, that children need to play and they need to interact with other adults and other children in order to you know, develop optimally. So in a way, childhood is rehearsal for adulthood, and screens are are definitely getting in the way of that. One thing I will ask is if there's any exception in in your guidance for parents of autistic children or children that are on the autism spectrum. Uh, There's more and more of them. Statistics show that. And I was out, I was at a a party, which, you know, kind of a dinner party last night. And one, there was a young woman there. She was, she was an adult, but in many ways she was kind of like a a child and she was there with her mother and her mother basically had her play with her phone for a bit. So as not to, you know, talk to or what she thought bother the other diners. Do you think there's any difference when it comes to autistic children? So that is an interesting question, and I have not done extensive research into that area. However, what is very interesting, I know, is that a lot of children who are, um, you know, differently wired, let's say, can struggle immensely with screen habits because they are more prone to feeling hyperstimulated from the device. So I spoke with parents of some autistic children who found that keeping their kids off devices was, in fact, um, preferable. Really? So these kids were, they really struggled with being able to handle the stimulation from the screen. So, yeah, I, I don't know. The one mother that I interviewed for my book, she had two children um, with autism, and she found that once she went a screen free route, it was uh, much easier to handle in their household. Interesting. Of course, every family is going to be different. Um, I can't speak too generally there, but um, yeah, that was that tended to be the finding that I came up with. If people are just tuning in, we're talking with Katherine Johnson Martinko. She's the uh, author of the book Childhood Unplugged, Practical Advice to Get Kids Off of off Screen and Find Balance. We're going to get to some of that practical advice in a moment. Catherine, do you make any distinction in terms of the type of screen we're talking about? Is uh, a television screen just as bad as a mobile phone? Is a computer screen just as bad as a tablet, in your view? I would say that the more portable a device and the more accessible it is, the more prone that user is to be to check it constantly. And that is a problem in my eyes. So when a kid has a phone in their pocket or a tablet in their hands, they can access anywhere they are at any point in the day. Um, It's going to be really, really hard to resist the allure of that device. And we know that these devices are designed, um, you know, to 
to draw us in, to be highly addictive. Um, that's how they're, the app designers have, have meant them to be. So a TV is um, better by comparison because it's a stationary object that stays in one place. You can leave the room and, and you know, or that child knows that they can't just, you know, be watching it at any second of the day. So, um, no, I would say that they're not all created equal in that case. A computer, too, um, again, it's, it's in one location, so it doesn't suck them in quite as much. Um, but, you know, the problem with all of our devices these days is that they're often designed to autoplay. And so children, even mm-hmm. if they're watching Netflix, have a lot of trouble um, stepping away from that device even when one show has ended because the next one is about to begin. And I've talked to some experts who recommend um, you know, even going back to old-fashioned, you know, DVDs, which are in getting your kids to watch a movie instead of a show necessarily, because there's a natural beginning and a natural end, and it helps the child's brain to comprehend that the time to watch a screen is now over, and they have to go do something else. Interesting. I, I like that a lot. Um, all right. Um, there's obviously, I think, from a very young age, a lot of peer pressure on children's to to keep up with the Joneses to have mm-hmm. a a smartphone. I, I think I think up until the age of eight, I, I see people, young people, with these smartphones. In your view, what is an appropriate age for a child to have a mobile phone? So that's a good question, and it's obviously quite complex. I would say that uh, a child up until their teen years, does not need a phone. Um, and then the question is, when that phone is introduced, what is it being used for? So the problem with smartphones is that the assumption is they come with um, apps and they're going to come with social media. And that's where my real issue is with. Um, social media, we know, to be a recipe for disaster for the mental well-being of teenagers. They're just not neurologically developed or emotionally mature enough to handle social media and, you know, all the casual, messy cruelty of the online world that comes along with it. So I would say it's one thing to give your kid a phone in order to reach you, especially if you live in a place where you need to be able to communicate with your child to set up, you know, drop-offs and pickups and other logistical challenges. But it's another if you're letting them use that device to, you know, be watching TikTok all the time, which, um, you know, can really mess with a kid's self-esteem and self-image and be posting, you know, videos on Instagram and texting friend groups incessantly. So really, I think it's about what you want that device to be used for. Some experts recommend that no kids should be on social media until the age of 16. 16. This goes against, yeah, yeah, this goes against the recommendation um, by tech companies that 13 is the legally appropriate age. But just because something is legally appropriate, and that age was designated back in the 90s before social media even existed in the form that it does now, just because it's legal doesn't necessarily make it um, wise. So I would say don't give your kid any kind of phone until they are at least 13 or 14, and then keep them off social media until they're at least 16. Interesting. Um, all right. Now let's talk about some practical advice to ki- to get kids off screen. I haven't read uh, your book yet, but I'm, I'm hoping to. What can parents do or grandparents, if they're listening, if they have a child, maybe they have a tablet, maybe they have a smartphone already, and they want to get that child off of the phone? What can they do? Yes, that's the, uh, the important question. I would say delay, delay, delay as long as you possibly can. So if you've not yet given your child a phone, don't, or even a tablet. I often find that uh, simply choosing not to buy these devices, not to bring them into your home at all is the best place to start. Um, it's like any sort of addictive substance. If you can see it and if you want it, it's going to be a lot harder to resist. And uh, we know that kids even seeing a device 
um, can trigger a dopamine release in their brain and they want it really badly. And then when they can't have it, there's often a hormonally induced um, meltdown that can occur. And that's also what happens when you take a device away from a child. So I say spare yourself the grief and uh, just avoid it as long as you possibly can. Um, I would say if you do, you know, so babies and toddlers should have zero exposure. That's a recommendation by the American Academy of Pediatrics up until the age of, you know, 18 months. Even at two, it should only be, quote, unquote, educational. But that is debatable because a lot of the educational apps are not really designed by experts who have Mm -hmm. any knowledge in that particular area. Um, I would say fill your kid's life with other things. So you do have to fill the void that's left behind when screens are taken away. And when we're talking in the range of, you know, six to nine hours a day that these kids are used to spending on their devices, if you take those away, they will feel at odds. They'll feel at loose ends. So I would say you have a responsibility as a parent to, you know, help them to develop other interests. That's not something that comes naturally. You know, you do need to, you know, invest in some loose parts, which are toys to have around your house with open-ended purpose, you know, things for kids to build and to construct. Sort of think back to how people used to live, you know, how you grew up, the kinds of things that you spent your time doing um, and that you love thinking about in retrospect. So that's really important. Um, I would say find like-minded individuals who adhere to this same philosophy. So uh, like you said, in that community that you live in with all these kids on their devices, Hopefully you can find, you know, one or two other families who don't want to send their kids out with a tablet in their hands and, you know, find that person and talk to them about you wanting to do the same for your child and maybe plan to send your kid out at the same time so that they can play. Um, There's definitely a movement to develop let, um, sorry, play clubs by a foundation called Let Grow based in New York City that is wanting to give kids screen-based Um, sort of unstructured playtime in dense urban environments where it might not be uh, safe to let your kids just go out into the street and play um, or for people who don't have backyards or live in apartment buildings. So there's definitely, um, you you do have to sort of replace it with play. As you get older, um, some teens who maybe want to be on social media at age 16 or whenever you deem it appropriate as a parent, one great recommendation is to let them have their profile and their account, but only access it on a desktop computer at home. So don't let them have the apps on their phone so that they're not tempted to pull their phone out of their pocket and check it every second of the day. That way they have a designated time, maybe once a day, a couple times a week when they can log in, get updated and not feel that they're completely out of the loop. So those are just a few suggestions off the top of my head. Obviously, I I go a lot more in depth in my book, uh, Childhood Unplugged, about each um, age category and what would be appropriate actions to take. One of the things that uh, – obviously when it's nice weather out, it's it's pretty easy. You can go play outside. You can go to a swimming pool. You can go to a park. You can go to a playground. But as we're approaching the winter months and when it's frigid or if it's raining out, the outside options are are very limiting. Do you have any favorite non-screen activities that you recommend to make sure children don't get uh, you know addicted to their screen? Yeah. Um, well, first of all, I would push back against that idea that non-summer weather is bad weather. Um, you know, I think that often inclement weather and more extreme temperatures can be really exciting for children. And often what we're doing as adults is sort of um, assuming that the emotions we feel about that weather also apply to our kids. So my kids love going out in you know the dead of winter. We live up in Ontario, Canada, and You know, we live with lots of snow and ice. And in a way, those are natural building blocks for kids. Uh, Even a rainy day, you've got puddles to deal with. And, you know, in the fall, there's piles of leaves. And there's just so much for kids to do outside. So even if it doesn't look 
like a terribly exciting um, place to play in your eyes to a child, it might be a magical kingdom of opportunity, especially a younger kid. So don't overlook the weather. Just just dress your kid properly. You can invest in some wonderful outdoor gear and get your kid out. Um, you can buy that stuff secondhand too, so it's not too expensive. And I'm sure your kid will love it. When you're indoors, however, of course, there are times when, when you have to be inside. Um, yeah, so our house is full of books. You know, we spend tons and tons of time reading books. And I have inherited a lot of books from people. I buy them at library book sales and secondhand bookshops. And my kids now are accustomed to, you know, coming home from school and flopping down on the couch and they all grab a Calvin and Hobbes, you know, comic mm. book or they, you know, get a novel. And they all hear them just laughing their heads off in the other room and sharing their favorite comic strips and whatnot. So they love to do that. Um, they like to play board games. So we have an extensive collection of board games. We have an arts and crafts cabinet so the kids can do clay modeling or origami paper folding or painting or, you know, things like that whenever they want. They're also expected to help out around the house. And they also have homework and they also take music lessons. So when you sort of factor in all of these other activities, they're really busy. And I don't even know when we would find time for them to just, you know, waste time on a screen in the course of a, of a typical day. So, you know, that's that's kind of a, a snapshot of what I think that you could spend your time doing when you're not outside. Uh, Catherine, I love talking with you and you got to come back. Uh, two final questions that I have to ask you. One is, uh, you know, we have a lot of uh, listeners that are uh, observant Jews and they refrain from any electronic devices uh, one day a week. And uh, I try to do that not for any religious reasons, but uh, just on Saturday for myself, I I find I'm surrounded by screens so much of the week. It's nice to give my brain a little bit of a break. Did your research uh, or are you aware of any research that looked into families of uh, religious backgrounds that uh, abstain from uh, television and electronic devices for one day a week? Oh, that's a fascinating question. Um, Well, obviously, Tiffany Schlain is the author of 24-6, The Power of Unplugging One Day a Week, a book that was immensely successful just a few years ago when it came out. And she's Jewish, and she and her family practice uh, Tech Shabbat, which obviously is um, a 24-hour period of not being on any devices as a family. And I think the real power there is that um, you are... um, you're, you're, you're modeling as a parent, and I think that that's the most effective parenting tool that we have. We know that. Um, and so when everyone can be offline together, um, just as, you know, as parents and children together, you are really imparting a great message to your kid. Um, I, I saw a lot of families doing that who were not necessarily religious. Uh, so I would say it's not limited to that at all, but I think it's a wonderful uh, model on which all of us can draw, no matter what background we come from. Lastly, on your Substack, which I'll recommend, people can just search Catherine Martinko and Substack, and it comes right up. You had a very interesting piece on uh, the art of family dinner. Um What's so big? What's such a big deal about family dinner? I think most of people grew up with a, a family dinner. They recognize that you, you you eat some food. Why is that so important? It is so important because families these days are busy. You know, we're all doing a million things. We've got both parents out working. We've got kids going to school and involved in a million extracurricular activities, all of which is great. But you need a point at which to come back together as a family. And it creates this one touch point, this one opportunity each day to sit around a table to share food that you've prepared, which obviously helps to ensure that everyone's eating well, and to engage in conversation. And, 
you know, we don't allow any screens at our table. Of course, my kids don't have phones. Um, no TV is on, um, you know, and, and everyone's just focused on each other. And we often play word games where we go around the table asking each kid what the highlight was of their day or what they're grateful for or what they might be struggling with. And I've noticed over the years that my children and any guests we have just light up when this game starts. And I think that it's a rare opportunity for kids these days to really feel seen and heard um, in a world that is moving at a very quick pace. Uh, Catherine uh, Johnson-Martinko, her book is Childhood Unplugged. You can get it on Amazon or wherever books are available. Catherine, very much enjoyed the time uh, this morning. I hope we can chat again. Thanks so much, Frank. It was my pleasure. Thank you. If you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you can give me a call, 800-848-9222, 800-848-9222, straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Sign at Midnight with Frank Morano. Forever in Blue Jeans by the great Neil Diamond. Uh, This is a birthday bumper music selection from none other than Jennifer Harrison. I've met Jennifer several times. Uh, I think I've interviewed her a few times as well. She's the founder of uh, Victim Rights New York, and uh, she's been an activist since her uh, her boyfriend, it might have even been her fiancé, but I think it was her boyfriend, was... Uh, the victim of a very serious crime, and she has done so much. She's testified before Congress. She has worked with uh, activist groups about the crime problem, and she's not a Jenny-come-lately to this. She's been at this for a while. Uh, She's been on radio a bunch. She's been on cable news a bunch. You've probably seen her, and I've met her. She's a great person and um, and just great. You can check out her website um, if you're interested in uh, victims' rights. It's called Victims Rights NY. Pack.com. And it uh, just so happens, she happens to have a really rough week for personal stuff that I won't get into. But uh, wishing her a happy birthday and hoping all of her birthday wishes come true. 800 848 Going to get to your calls in one minute. You know, I'm listening to Catherine. And I don't know what kind of parent she is in the privacy of her own home. But she sounds like a pretty great parent, right? And today, you know, my son, he really wanted a cookie, even though he didn't eat lunch. And I let him have a cookie. And he was just he's just been so sweet lately. You know, he's just been so kind, very generous with the I love you dads and the hugs and just just very cute. And, you know, it's just about at the end of the time that I spend with him and Rachel's about to change shifts. 
and he asks for some M's. And so, uh, you know, so, all right, we sneak into the kitchen. I'll get him a couple of peanut M&M's. I give him the, the M&M's. And my, just at that moment, my wife comes out of her office and sees me giving her the M&M's. She said, what? Didn't you just tell me he didn't really eat lunch? You're giving him M&M's. So uh, she gave me a hard time for letting him have a little bit of junk food. That is a rarity. And even my wife acknowledged that. She said, you never do that. You never give him junk food without uh, without making sure he's eating lunch or dinner. Well, what could I say? I had a, a moment of weakness. He knows he knows how to charm me, the kid. I, I can't, can't help it. 800-848-9222. Jimmy's in Rockland. Hey, Jimmy. Hey there, Frank. Well, before I get to the comments on the statistics, if you're even concerned about leaving Carmine for 15 minutes, you're the father of the decade. <laughs> because you're not going out for a smoke or something. You're going to do something positive work-wise. Well, I mean, yeah, I'm on. there with him. I'm there with him. I'm not, you know, I, I'm there. Yeah, I'm not letting him, you know, out into the jungle or anything. You're a great guy. They even have that thought in your head. Come on. All right, well, I have I feel a, a little better now. 17 year old, and who knows what you do to pass some time to get free. You know what I mean? Gotcha. But the statistics, as far as this is concerned, it's, it's almost like they're so inaccurate to the actual situation at hand. I know so many people in NYPD, say you have a guy who's running around fighting his brother, he's wheeling a hammer, drinking that day, this and that, the other thing. The officers, they can de-escalate that situation without incident. Like, they tell him one time, drop the hammer. He does. Uh, possible felony, it's gone. You know, now they, yeah, one of the guys recognizes the guy from high school back in the day. He's like, all right, I got to take this guy in, give him a disorderly blah, 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 push him through the system. Now he gets a court-appointed lawyer, throws out the hammer, can't even mention it. Boom. It's thrown out. There's no stat at all. So how could it even be a discussion? In my Interesting. Interesting. And this goes on all over the country, apparently, right? Because this is a, a nationwide problem. Thank you, Jimmy. Helen's in Fairfield. Hi, hi Helen. Hi. Um, good morning. morning. So I actually wanted to ask Catherine, kind of along the, the line that you were talking with her about the Sabbath and um, uh, people um, not using any of those devices because of religious reasons. But I, right before that, I started thinking, well, what about various countries. Helen, um, let me let me have you hold, because I don't want to cut off your point, and we're up against a hard break here. We'll take your call right after the top of the hour. Until next hour, keep asking questions. <laughs> 